The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. Welcome to the Institute of Directors Business Podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over Scotland about their careers and business. I am your host, Marlene Lowe, UK Director for Four Bytes and long-term IOD member. In today's episode, we're speaking with Ewan Donaldson, Managing Director of OCAD LED Lighting Solutions. He speaks with us about his journey from being a young entrepreneur selling cans of Coke to running a UK-based LED manufacturing, offering innovative, energy-efficient lighting for the onshore and offshore market. So we start with an entertaining tale of mistaken identity, a budding football career, and Ewan paints an interesting career path that's sure to inspire. Perfect. Okay, so what I could, well, before actually, before we start, I did some research and I saw that there's a football personality with your exact same name and around the same age. Yeah, but I was a better football player than him. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Do you know, what, do you know what's, what's funny, Marlene, is that um, I don't know the guy direct, but um, a few of my friends played with him. Oh. We, were, we were both kind of going around the boys' clubs at the same time, and yeah. one and joke is that it was me that should have got scouted and not him because he was rubbish at professional football. So <laughs> it was an identity. They got, the, they got their identities wrong. It was me that should have got the... Uh, got scouted, but anyway, I'm not going to hold, hold, hold them against it. Because <laughs> it's quite funny, because your pictures look kind of similar, but there's something not quite there, so I was we like... Both, we, both played, we both played left-back, we were yeah. both left-sided football players, um, same position, same name, same everything, and that, that, there, is a, there is a running joke that um, he was... They, 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 kept, they contacted the wrong Ewan Donaldson. Yeah. <laughs> That's just insane. Because yeah, I saw some similarity. I was like, this seems like too much of a coincidence. I'm about yeah, to ask, yeah. otherwise I'm gonna ask a question that's gonna make me look silly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Cool. Well, let's have I might even include that part in the podcast as well, because that's actually quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Great. So why don't we start where all good stories start at the beginning? Um, which degree did you go into? Why did you go into that degree? And let's see where what happens there. Uh, I did a business degree. Yeah. Um, at Napier University. Uh, left school with no real kind of direction or focus on what I wanted to do. But I kind of figured that a fairly generic business degree would kind of see me in some direction um, where I wanted to kind of move. So it kind of obviously you had all your business administration your accounting, a little bit of everything, and I kind of fancied the university life in Edinburgh, so that's the, kind of, that's the path that I went down. Um, 
and then maybe from then on, I might have thought could have maybe focused on something, but uh, it wasn't to be. Three years was long enough, so I wanted to get out and about and start start earning, I suppose, and start learning. So, did you? Well, why business as opposed to any other degree? Um, mm, I don't actually know. I think I had a little bit of exposure to business. Um, my mum had a kind of small newsagent grocery shop when we were growing up. So uh, they uh, had newspapers and kind of general kind of groceries and um, sweets, confectionery, etc. And we kind of, it was a bit of a family business. Uh, so we were very much, everybody mucked in. Sometimes I had to do not just one paper round, but probably two or three paper rounds if the paper boys ever turned up that day. So I had to do that. And then as I got older, maybe... Yeah, we probably kind of dabble a little bit and go to the cash and carry and buying things and then selling it. And then I would always put, there used to be this rack at the end of the, the cash and carry where all the, the burst packages used to be. So cans of Coke and Chris, they would be discounted because the case was uh, had been split open. So I'd always go buy them at half the price, take them back and give them to a month to kind of sell uh, a little bit more, more profit. So I think that was probably the first inkling is to maybe potentially going down a, a business route. And then I just thought as a broad brush, I quite quite fancied having a look at how businesses were run. And then from then I went into kind of pensions and investments and well, latterly OCAD LED. But it's, uh, yeah, that was my first kind of, my first footing into it, I suppose. <laughs> quite, quite a good story as well. Already having that business acumen, if you will, of buying something smaller, selling off into smaller chunks. Ah, uh, yeah. I, mean, it was, I, I think I remember... The cans of Coke this, at this time was in the probably early early nineties. Where if the, if the case had been split open, you could buy them for ten pence, mm. and I think the going rate for it was maybe forty to fifty pence. Um, so that uh, I always remember that there were always everyone seems the cans of Coke always seemed to be there, like they just burst the cases all the time. So I was lumping all this kind of stuff into the back of the car. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was kind of gave me a bit of a flavour for it, I suppose. You didn't burst them yourself, did you? <laughs> Might have done. <laughs> <laughs> Might have dropped a few. No, I didn't. <laughs> so what got you, you said you went into pensions after that. So you come out of university and, and, and what happens next? So I, I worked a couple of kind of um, part-time jobs when I left. Uh, it was 1999 when I got my first kind of start, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, on the graduate programme at Scottish Amicable, uh, working down at the... They had like a, a service centre in George Square in Glasgow. So we were kind of administrating the pensions and doing a bit kind of data inputting and just familiarising how pensions are put together. So we would liaise with IFAs. They would phone in with their clients, with their details, how much they were wanting to invest, etc. We would kind of drop the pension illustrations and we would illustrate how what the investments and what the returns were likely to be, etc. So it was very much an administrative role, but quite a good footing into um, into the pensions and investment kind of world. We went and sat on the financial planning certificates, and I think when I when I first started the role, I was, I was quite keen, and I thought there might be a career in there for me. But the lot, the more and more I got into the the industry, probably the less I could see myself um, progressing through it. So I lasted about just just almost three years there. Took my certifications, um, and then after that, I didn't really kind of go back into it. I was, I was kind of had enough by then. <laughs> okay. So what was the? I'm trying to see where the connection between doing that to running your own business. So, what? Tell us about that part. To, to you. Right, so, 
I, I had, for as long as I can remember, I, had, I don't know where it came from, but I always had this idea that I, one day I was going to work for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, don't know where it came from. I just always used to tell myself, I would tell my friends that I'm going to run my own business one day and I'm going to work for myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how I was going to do it or when it was going to happen, but I just kept on telling myself that it's going to happen. So when I, when I kind of I moved back, uh, moved away from Glasgow from pensions and investments, worked a couple of kind of part-time jobs, worked on a building site, worked, just did various things just to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, went work, I then started a position with the A Proctor Group, so for Alan Proctor up in Blair Gary, so they do um, construction materials, breather membranes, they've got a whole kind of construction division. Um, okay. Large company, they're probably turning over maybe 25, 30 million now. Yeah. So I in the technical office, um, got to learn the business, the products, how um, they're all put together. So I kind of cut my teeth working there for a year in the tech office. And then once I kind of learned the products and how they were kind of um, um, put out to the market, I went transferred over to the commercial kind of sales side of the business uh, and ran the kind of East Central Scotland uh, territory as a, as a regional sales manager. And that's where I really kind of, really, that's where I really started to enjoy that kind of uh, role the most, going out and speaking to architects, designers, um, and then obviously on the on the commercial side, uh, builders, merchants, and contractors and stuff. So it was a, a, a big, a varied role, but complete control of how much you, how much you, what your sales could be was a direct mm-hmm. result of how much effort you put into and how much, how many clients you went to go and visit. And that's when I really kind of thought sales, business, and business development where where my kind of where my future is going to lie. Yeah, that's where you found your passion. Uh, I think just speaking to people and going out and yeah, meeting new people. But a lot of the, it, was, it was a lot of the stuff that I was doing with Proctors was very much uh, solution related. So they had really really good product range. You were going to speak to the designers. You were getting specified in the drawing. So you tracked that project all the way through. So by the time they came on the site with the the actual contractor, the, it was the specification was already written. So you. I, my job was once you got it specified was to make sure it was watertight all the way through the different stages of construction um, and I, I, that's what I, I enjoyed having that kind of control over um, that whole kind of sales cycle so I spent about five years at, at Proctor's um, when I, I worked for about six months with this timber frame company down south that didn't work out and <laughs> looking back it was a, a, a probably a bad decision but you never know it's a bad decision until you look back until you do it yeah <laughs> And then about 2008, 2007, um, myself and my best friend, I'm still as my best mate, uh, Fogg Davidson, we set up, uh, we started our first kind of subway franchise um, shop. So the idea was, <laughs> he still curses me a little bit about this. Um, so he was going to, he worked at Proctors as well in the sales office. He left uh, to go and train uh, over in America at Subway. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got our first kind of um, shop identified in Creef. Opened it in 2008, about a month before the, uh, the financial crash. But I think if it had been any later than that, I don't think we'd have got the money from the bank, to be honest. But, um, so yeah. we got that, got, got the shop opened. Um, it traded. Um, it was our first couple of years were really quite quite good. And we had a, a strategy in place that we wanted to open uh, 10 stores in total over about a kind of eight to 10 year period. Um, so in 2010, we opened up Broughty Ferry. We opened up a store about every two years, but we stopped at five. Um, just because of the way things, it was costing more money to open up in stores, it was costing more money to run them, pay people, pensions, holidays, all that kind of stuff. So it was becoming less attractive 
the 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 profit to risk is what how we would call it was getting too too close so we just thought look five's enough and we kind of we stopped at that mm-hmm. in between all that um we also bought a or we kind of got into a franchise uh, with a company called irt service they do uh, thermal imaging don't know if you are you familiar with it with that business no i'm not so irt um they're a building diagnostic company based in dundee mm-hmm. so they, they use infrared technology, so a thermal imaging camera, to identify building defects. Um, so leaking buildings, leaking flat roofs, poor insulation, wet insulation, general kind of building diagnostics. You can use an infrared camera to identify what's wrong with the building. Wow. So we, we, we took that on. I ran that for about eight years. Um, but speaking to or going out and getting business with local authorities, universities, colleges, all the big, big buildings, all the big asset owners, yeah. Um, we ran we ran that business very successfully, um, but in that time, the whole energy efficiency sector was kind of really starting to kick off. Carbon reduction, the government were coming in with legislation, and I just felt with the with the IRT business, it was very very niche. It was very kind of bespoke. The size of the market was still significant, but we were speaking to our clients about a bigger bigger scale on energy efficiency, which incorporated LED lighting, and then. 2014, that's when we kind of got into the LED lighting side of the business. So did you have, what was it about LEDs? Was it because you saw a business opportunity or is was there something else that made you feel drawn to LEDs? So what happened when we were, uh, about 2011, 2012, um, the government were legislation legislating with what was, I think it was the CRC, so the Carbon Reduction Commitment, and there's a lot of legislation coming out which were encouraging and, and forcing companies to be more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. So what, what would generally happen is you would go and do an energy audit at a business, uh, an organization. They could just be one massive site or they could be a whole uh, kind of nationwide uh, rollout type business that's got lots of sites. So you would go and do an analysis and the analysis might be insulate your walls, put double glazing in, put in a new efficient gas boiler, put in new HVAC, and change your lighting to LED or more efficient lighting. And almost, I would say 99% of the reports that we were doing, LED was pretty, if it wasn't the, the number one energy efficient measure to do, it was number two. It was number two, yeah. Number one quite often was um, large scale um, uh, boiler or heating and ventilation replacements, which was invasive. It was it was a, just a, a really quite a specialist niche kind of um, energy efficiency measure to stick into a big building. Mm-hmm. Changing mm-hmm. the lighting is probably the easiest in terms of the easiest and the quickest win. Yeah. And um, yeah. the barriers to entry were low. And that's why we thought, look, we need to, we need to get into LED lighting. And that was back in about 2011, 12 type. I hadn't really kind of gone into the LED light at that point, but that's when the, the, the thoughts were still kind of, the thoughts were starting to kind of materialize that lighting is probably where we need to at least explore quite significantly yeah so i read with that that your first kind of industry that you tried to go for was oil and gas yeah about that story because <laughs> in our emails as well yes <laughs> so it was oil and gas um and we thought that without having any experience in led lighting or oil and gas that we would uh, enter this market <laughs> um, we can laugh a little bit about it now, but I'll tell you the, the whole kind of story. So we, we, 
we were, we were engaged with an electrical engineer who came and I to say, look, I've got an idea for an offshore uh, LED lighting solution. I think it can save the industry a lot of money because, again, legislation was forcing them down a route of you need to be more efficient, you need to be greener. You know, oil's an energy intensive uh, resource to get out of the ground. And although lighting formed a tiny part of their overall consumption, it was still going to contribute quite a lot to the overall kind of picture. So we engaged with, with, with uh, this engineer who had an idea. We formed a company, and the idea was that we were going to take um, an LED light and solution, and I've actually bought a prop, so it's not like, not like Blue Peter here. So this, <laughs> see that? That's what we designed. Okay. Standard LED tube. Yeah. But what see is that it's only got one, one pin on the end of it. Yeah. Whereas a standard one for the onshore market. It's got two. Got two, yeah? Yeah. So in layman's terms, this this one was going to save each each light for each luminaire about a thousand pounds. Because what, what the offshore industry were doing, they were taking a whole light fitting off a little uh, so if you imagine a platform, mm-hmm. sometimes it could up uh, upwards of three, four, five thousand light fittings on it. And each fitting will have two each fitting will have two of these in it. Yeah. To, to, to make the, the lighting more efficient on the platform, the only real option the only real option they had was to take the old fitting off mm-hmm. and replace it with a whole brand new LED fitting. Wow. Now, the cost involved, the actual fitting itself was around, at the time, around about £1,000. They, they, they had to get it out there first, so they had to go on a boat or on a pallet. They had to get it from the boat, then up onto the platform. They then had to pay an electrician how, how much per hour to then go and take the old fitting off, put the new one on. That old fitting then had to be taken back to shore because it's it's surplus, you can't just leave it on the platform. And the time involved in doing it was quite labor intensive in terms of what they had to do to get it it switched over. So the solution was that rather than take the old fitting off, was just replace the actual tubes inside the fitting with one of these. Yeah. Rather than being a thousand pounds, it was about 200 pounds. Wow. You didn't, have to, you didn't have to ship a new luminaire out. Yeah. You didn't have to ship the old fitting back. So all the way through the kind of process, it was a lot simpler mm. just to put one of these in. Yeah. Nobody was making these. All it was, the standard LED tube, was, the wiring was different, obviously, because of um, the certification we had to get to make it uh, zone two for ATEC certification. But that's effectively what it was. Very, very simple. Mm. So before we actually went into the market, we spoke to two or three oil companies um, who were operating offshore and we kind of pitched the, the concept. They liked it and we built some prototypes. We did a prototype proof of concept uh, section on the platform. We tested it before, we tested it after and we achieved about 66% electricity savings on the lighting circuit. Wow, that's and, huge. So 66%, which is in line with what you would expect onshore with LED. Yeah. So everything's going well. This is 2014, kind of tail end of 2014, 15. There, there's a market there. We've got a product. We've got um, a, a, a desire and an interest from some big, big oil companies. Fairfield Oil were one of them. Mm. Um, so demand was there, or certainly demand to 
not just do the proof of concept, but explore it and scale it a little bit. So we took the proof of concept, we scaled it to a slightly bigger project. Again, 66% savings on, the next, on this next project. So we're now at about 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, we went out to Houston in the US, uh, launched it at uh, the Oil and Gas kind of Expo, um, which is there annually. We went out with the Scottish Development International, um, and we had lots of conversations with other companies. Again, the interest in the, um, was, was high. The feedback was strong, it was very, very positive. And then we got back, that was maybe about May, June time. Yeah. And then in and around that time in oil and gas, or certainly in the, in the oil industry, the, the prices were starting to slide a little bit. So this was, it was up over $100 a barrel when we were kind of getting into this market. So the market was strong, the industry was strong. And as newcomers into the industry with no kind of um, historical experience, we kind of we needed the market to be strong and in a position where they're going to look at new technologies. And this was, exactly. although yeah. core of their kind of actual exploration or their drilling, it was from an operational perspective, it kind of ticked quite a lot of boxes. Yeah. Um, so what we know, we came when we came back from Houston, the oil price was starting to slide and slide and slide, and then it crashed. I think around about the tail end of that year, or maybe even two, 2016, it got down to about 20, it was below thirty dollars a barrel. Anyway. So in that time, uh, the, a lot of people in Aberdeen certainly got, they lost their jobs. So all the people that we were typically speaking to, they weren't there to even speak to. The, 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 the industry contracted. The, the appetite for having this type of project and these type of um, kind of, well, they were expenditures. They were, they were, they were going to cost a lot of money to, to do. There just wasn't any appetite for it. So we got to a point where we'd spent a lot of money Quite a lot of money getting certification, just getting the product, getting it product, getting it market ready, getting everything done, mm -hmm. the, the logo, the supply chain, the proofs of concept, everything. We spent a significant amount of money. Um, and a project point at this time, the, the engineer or the, one of the, the founder and the designer, effectively of the actual fitting, hadn't put any money at the start. We knew that he didn't have any money to put in. His contribution was the idea. Myself and my business partner, we were going to fund the process. Yeah. And it come to a point where that appetite for us to then fund this whole uh, speculation had come to an end. Okay. And we were in quite significantly financially. So we've sat around the table and kind of said, look, this can't go on. We can't go on. We can't go any further in the oil and gas sector. We can't go on any further with the business the way it is. Mm -hmm. It's hemorrhaging money. We need to either completely stop it or we need to change focus and go after different sectors. Yeah. So it was very, very, it was a, although it was painful at the time, it was very diplomatic. And um, Jim, one of the founding shareholders, did the right thing and said, like, I understand the position. So he handed his shares back. We took full control of the company. And it was at that point in 2016, we decided that we weren't going to do anything more speculative with onshore. Mm -hmm. But what have we got? What's left in the business from an asset perspective that we can actually try and dig ourselves out? Yeah. So we sat down and we well, what, what, we, what have we got? Well, we've got a lot of intel and a lot of knowledge on how to make an LED light fitting. <laughs> we, <don't want, laughs> we know what we know what LED chips make a good fitting. We know what, what housing, what drivers, what power supplies, all the components. We know all the components. We've got a, we've got a supply chain. So rather than try and go into these markets with us high barriers to entry, we thought right. Stop all that. Um, we're just going to focus on the onshore. 
Mm -hmm. So the retail, the industrial, commercial, street lighting, warehousing, the all the running of the mill kind of sectors that's got very little barrier to entry. The the size of the market's growing significantly on the back of all these energy audits that are were being done and are going to be doing in the future and are still happening now. Yeah. Let's focus on yeah. that. So I slowly kind of I literally picked up my phone, put a strategy in place, put a, a contact list of everybody we'd spoken to from the oil side of the market. And said, well, they've all got offices. Yeah. They've all got car parks. They've all got yeah. fabrication yards. They've all got facilities on shore, but none of them have got an LED. Yeah. So I then we engaged and said, look, we know you're not doing anything offshore, but your offices could do um, are very inefficient. Your lighting's inefficient in your car parks. So we started building projects for our original clients for the offshore sector. So we engaged with Wood Group, um, Amec, Foster Wheeler, um, Drill Quip, um, uh, Oceaneering. So all these big oil companies, we ended up, we delivered projects for them over the next kind of two to two and a half years, which brought us up to about 2018. Yeah. We were starting yeah. to get a significant amount of momentum. We were still, still in a bit of a financial hole, but we were starting to kind of peek out over the top. <laughs> uh, we, were, we had our hands, we had our, we had our hands on the edge of the hole. Yeah. And we were trying to get over the top and the more momentum we got, we were starting to become a, a, a bona fide lighting company effectively. Back to 2000, back to 2016, 17, that was our kind of recovery year. Yeah. Um, we really kind of, really start to put some firm foundations in the business as to what it's going to look like. So we, we specifically targeted, um, we were firmly focused on um, retail, uh, the facilities management, public sector, um, and uh, the kind of the street light and car park inside of uh, the industry as well. So that's kind of that's really taking us to where we're at at the moment, and that's where we're at. Our, although we're doing more and more public sector now, I'm conscious that we want to have a we still want to have a good mix in the business. So we're doing our private clients and our public sector uh, projects. Um, so frameworks such as the non-domestic energy efficiency framework. So and the Scottish Government have got these frameworks where public sector, like local authorities and NHS, uh, can build large-scale energy efficiency projects. Although we're not big enough to supply them direct, there is a framework that sits below um, NHS and the public sector, etc., where we can supply the FM companies like Vital Energy, Robertson's, Onji, or any of the, kind of, uh, the framework partners. So that's our kind of strategy moving forward. So take me back to that decision where you had to make a decision to either completely change the business or close the doors. I mean, that, that's a daunting place to be in regardless, especially when you don't know what's going to happen going forward. Um, and I'm sure lots of people had to go through that of actually going, no, we need the security. So what was your driving factor to go, nah, stuff the security, I want to go for this anyway? <laughs> Stubbornness. <laughs> Possibly. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, there was a few things. I, I knew that energy efficiency, carbon reduction, you, you didn't have to, you could barely turn on the television, even now, or even mm -hmm. any, of the, any of the media, and energy is not that far from the, the, the top of the agenda, or efficiency, carbon, and the environment, and the agenda was growing, and, and, and you could hear all, all, all the noise and everything, that, and, and all the media was all talking about energy efficiency and, and the environment and how sustainable we're going to be moving forward. So I, 
I did listen to that and I knew that LED lighting with how efficient it was, it's only going to become more efficient. But that that dogged bit of whether it's my personality or just the fact I don't like losing money. Just, <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit of everything, but I just I, I knew I knew we were onto something. We just had to kind of get it to a stage where we could trust it and where people would trust us and a lot of our businesses repeat business. Yeah. Um, yeah from all our sectors, which is probably the biggest. Anyone, who, anyone who's in business will tell you that the biggest vote of confidence you can get is when a customer comes back and wants to, wants to trade with you a second time yeah. or a third or a fourth yeah. or a fifth. And that's, that's how we've kind of built our business, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Now, you have a natural interest in environment um, or sustainability, or is it that you've seen an opportunity here to make a business that makes a change? Where Where's the passion, not just for business, but for the topic itself? Well, I think whether it's my mindset or the way I've been brought up, but I just I think I've got this. I don't really see the point in waste and mm-hmm. wasteful in general terms. If we can if we can operate in a more efficient manner and using less resources and ultimately become more profitable, but still look after the environment and. Uh, not just for ourselves, but for our children and for their children for generations to come, then that's, that's, that's got to be worth doing. Um, yeah. I, I generally don't see the need in being wasteful in any kind of resource, whether that be financial, whether it be from a, from a lighting perspective, from electricity, from gas, from any of the kind of resources. If we can use as little as we can without sacrificing um, our performance, then that's, that's a pretty good business model. Mm. What's the if you could pinpoint one thing that you've learned throughout your journey uh, and your career, what's one thing that maybe you wish someone had taught you when you're back at Napier? <laughs> what is the one thing? Uh, it's not going to be easy. Yeah, that's probably one thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, you, you, I don't know what, what anyone else is like. But most business. A lot of my friends are businessmen, um, and I don't think you ever get to a point where you're really, really, truly satisfied with what you've achieved and what you've got. And a lot of the people I speak to still feel that they've got a lot to give and they've not quite got to the top of that mountain. So I think, that, yeah, looking back, if, if there's one thing you could tell yourself is that it's not going to be easy and you're going to have to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in, and that's probably the best bit of advice I can give to anyone. Yeah. Um, you, you don't you don't start up a business uh, expecting it to be expect to be easy. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> I suppose that that top of the mountain. I wonder if there is a top of the mountain because from my experience, and you see it with our membership as well, there is no one in the membership that seems to get to that point where they're like, "I'm ready. I've I've learned everything I can." Uh, something that I love about the community we have around us is everyone is striving to learn a little bit more about something. They're striving to figure out a new challenge or share their learnings. Um, and that, that's, that's something I've, I think is quite intrinsic in the business mindset. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think when you, when you really do analyze it, I think most businessmen will be the same, whether you're starting business or whether you're, in, whether you're acquiring businesses, that you, you've really got to know or you don't have to know the questions you've got to ask, but certainly have the, have the inquisitiveness to ask as many questions as you can. 
Yeah. And yeah. I can't remember who said this, but I'm, I'm pretty, I remember reading somewhere quite recently that if you ask enough whys, then the hows will become quite apparent. And if you ask, why does this do that? Why is it done like that? Why has it been, how does it work? If you ask enough, ask enough questions, then you'll kind of work your kind of pathway out. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. probably going back to when we were learning, I mean, I didn't know anything about an LED light fan when we first got into the industry, but <laughs> I followed our supply chain really, really closely and I, I asked questions the whole way. All our, all our supply chain, although I'm, I don't know how to make all the components, I've got a pretty good understanding now of how they're all kind of put together and why they do what they do and how they do what they do. Um, so I think, if, yeah, if you, if you can ask enough questions, at least be nosy enough and have the inquisitiveness, um, you'll generally kind of find that, you'll, you'll find the pathway. That's a common theme I've been noticing with conversations lately is everyone saying that anyone that wants to be successful in business or um, in sales is to have that natural inquisitiveness and the, the need to know everything. <laughs> well, that's it. And you, you have, I think for me, I have this filter where you, you probably ask loads and loads of questions that initially you might not need to the answers to, but you filter out the bits that you really want to keep and the bits that you're really going to use and move forward. So I suppose having that kind of information filter and ask as much as you can, filter out the stuff you don't really need right at this moment in time, but you might you might need it later and then you can kind of draw on it. So yeah, ask as many questions as you can and get as much information as possible. Do you feel that you were always that inquisitive or is it something you've had to learn over time? No, it's definitely it's definitely in your personality. I think from, your, from, <laughs> from when you're young, um, I don't know what I was. Well, I was probably constantly pestering my parents and my aunties and uncles and grandparents constantly. Why is this? Why? 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 And probably to the point where they're at the end of their tether. But it's <laughs> listen, it's it's, it's kind of it's done me okay uh, so far of asking the whys and the hows. But um, yeah, it's probably a valid piece of information. So would that be your main advice for anyone, anyone wanting to get into an industry that they might not have the, the knowledge in previously? Oh, you, you definitely need to have that inquisitiveness. Mm. And what I, what I sometimes, and I, I've probably been guilty of this myself sometimes as well, is that you sometimes have a fear of asking a stupid question. Mm. And I'm definitely of the mindset now that there's no such thing as a stupid question because if it was a stupid question, you wouldn't be asking it. Yeah. Uh, and you, yeah. you really have to be on that ability to look, if, if, if someone is talking in complete and utter industry jargon and they're it's very, very technical, I think you're quite within your rights to ask them to explain it. Um, and I, yeah, that's probably where I, I, I might have been guilty of asking uh, allegedly stupid questions, but I, don't, I generally don't believe there are any stupid questions. I can agree with that because if someone hasn't said something in a way that you understand it, Yep. Asking the question might get them to reassess the way that they're phrasing things. Absolutely. Um, and then Absolutely. you start noticing a pattern unraveling and, and elements of something that you might not have noticed before. But I think it does a service to the person answering as well, because they might realize, oh, wait, why is it like that? I think we're, we're so, it's so easy to get used to saying things a certain way because that's the way you're taught. Um, so yeah. having someone question why you're saying something a certain way can really make you start thinking and stepping outside of the box. No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think, obviously, we're so connected now with, with, with internet and um, different kind of uh, variations of how we're connected with people. And 
there is everything has to be abbreviated now, doesn't it? It's like everything's got to be shortened down and abbreviated. And it's, it's, it just comes to a point where it almost doesn't make sense to abbreviate anything. And I think that there's a lot of languages being, or certainly language has been lost to some degree. So yeah, I think I'm very much a, I'm very much a, a layman in a lot of respects of how things need to be kind of set out. I'm not really one for complicating matters or complicating issues. So it's for me, it needs to be quite kind of straightforward. Yeah. So what does, obviously, we touched upon this earlier about what the future has to offer and you had expectations of 2020 that, um, for obvious reasons, <laughs> may not have gone the way that we planned. But what, what has this made you change direction again? Or do you feel like it's just a case of keeping going and seeing what the next couple of years have to offer? So what we're finding, that this was actually happening before uh, uh, COVID, where lighting or energy efficiency measures are a big expense to the business, to any business. Um, certainly if you're uh, a retail outlet who was potentially on the high street, was maybe, obviously sales are going down on the high street, the high street's in a bit of a, pre-COVID, it was showing some signs of difficulty, significant signs of difficulty, in fact. COVID's come along, it's probably in a lot of, and certainly in a lot of retail outlets, there'll be a lot of CEOs and um, finance directors sitting down, rationalising their estate now to say, look, these these stores can't continue. Yeah. But yeah. what we found is that legislation is still driving these large organisations to become more efficient. But if they've got a massive expense of a million, two million, three million pounds to make their estate more efficient. It's a big number for any business to fork out on what's maybe not deemed as kind of critical um, operating uh, costs. So what we're finding in the marketplace is that for these organisations that have got big expenditure, there's there's finance models out there, whether it be a lease purchase model, higher purchase, because energy efficiency has a known saving, mm -hmm. has it also got, that means it's got a known payback. Yeah. So yeah. for example, a three million pounds lighting project on a re in a retail environment would pay itself back in savings potentially between two and three years. Mm. But again, they don't want to pay that money up front. So we can engage with finance companies or they can engage with a finance company. So the savings, the savings that you'll immediately get from lighting will pay for the actual cost of the finance. So it makes it cash flow neutral for the, for the end user. Yeah. They're, paying yeah. less for they're paying less for the electricity company but that, that difference goes to pay for the finance company over a term and then after the third year or whatever the payback is, the business then realises um, that saving. But up until then, it's, it's cash flow neutral. It's not, it's not going to impact the business at all. The cash flow stays as it is. That's, a big, that's probably one of the biggest shifts we're seeing. People aren't, they don't want to pay for the, they don't want to pay for these measures anymore. They want to pay it over a term. Similar to how you would pay for a mobile phone contract. You just want to pay it monthly. And at the end of it, you'll own it. Yeah. Do you think that they're um, them wanting to do do these like monthly installments, if you will? Do you think that's a product of the way that our culture is at the minute, or do you think there's another underlying issue as to why they're reticent to making those long-term investments? Well, there's probably a number of factors, and, I, and as from being a business owner and from um, engaging with these other our clients as well, you've. Uh, the cost of running a business has gone up significantly. It has done in the last probably five to six years with um, increased holiday entitlement, uh, pension contributions, uh, minimum and living wage um, 
um, requirements as an employer onto our employees, which, listen, it's, I'm all for it, but there, there, there's always going to be a cost to that, and there's going to something something has to be sacrificed. And I think we're we're noticing that the, from a capital expenditure perspective, the cash in the business, people are less um, they're less willing to commit all that money up front for something that's going to take two or three years to pay back. The appetite that we're seeing is that if they can take it pain free, but still tick their kind of sustainability box and make themselves, they're going to have, they're obviously they're going to be more efficient, but they're not taking that money out of the business. I'm, I do see that as a cultural kind of uh, shift that I'm seeing quite, quite significantly. What do you think it would take for businesses to want to make the changes as opposed to feeling like legislature or government are forcing them to do it? Well, there's a, there's a known financial benefit. And after this, let's just say that this was a three-year payback for them. So in, in lighting perspective, our lights will we'll give a, a baseline of, of a five-year warranty. That's looking like we're plugging you off in seven years in the near future. So there's going to be a massive financial saving for them even after the, the lights or the original kind of contract's been paid off. They'll certainly get an improvement in their uh, the quality of light, certainly in, the, in their facility immediately. So if you're in an office, retail environment, a warehouse, there's going to be the, the, the improvement in lighting. But certainly from year year three onwards if they're doing it through a model they're going to save significantly so there's a financial incentive there um over and above the environmental type legislation drivers yeah so is it just making them aware of that now and showing them that that's something that they can put on their table take to the board speak to their business owners about yeah i mean in the early days there was a lot of when led was quite new to the market there was an education process that's all finished now. The LED is an accepted technology. So yeah, it's very much engaging with the business. Sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's the FD, sometimes it's the property manager or the estates director. There's all these different people, but what we're finding is that these types of decisions are becoming, they're, they're going further up the, the, the business now because of the implications, we call the ESG factors for your environmental and social and governance. And there's there's a lot, a lot of levers, a lot of drivers out there that. The, the bigger the, the bigger organizations certainly seem to be kind of drawn towards it. Yeah. Yeah. What would your call to action be for Scottish businesses? Or actually businesses everywhere, but more specifically maybe Scotland? To the businesses or to the governments? Oh, <laughs> let's try both of them. <laughs> uh, well, I think, I think we, we all need to be as efficient as we can. Uh, back office, we need to be as efficient. We need to run our businesses on, on low and overhead as we can without impl implicating anything for our clients or what, whatever our end product is because quality is ultimately what's going to keep our customers coming back and I, I think any business will understand that any business owner will understand that if you're if you're selling something or something to your clients you want that client to come back again because it's difficult getting a new client yeah um, it's very yeah. easy to lose them but very difficult to get a new client so it's very much a case of if you give them value for money and you can service them then they will come back so certainly being, being efficient but you, you've got to listen to your clients and your customers as well and adapt to what what the markets are telling you um, and that's ultimately why we got into specifically got into light and energy efficiency because of the the agenda that was that we were in and we still are in i could see it for the foreseeable so yeah my call to arms would be be as, be as efficient as we can but you got you got to listen to your customers yeah and to government government right okay <laughs> how, long have, how long have we got? 
Um, <laughs> yeah, probably got the better of me, to be in all honesty. So I sent an email back saying, yes, we're still manufacturing these LED tubes, but they're purely just to order. Um, there's a minimum order quantity. This is what the prices are. And we did actually, we did actually have some stock, and I checked before I replied to that email. Mm. Um, so an email came back a couple of days later, great, can you send me some samples? We sent some <laughs> samples out. We tried them. They loved them. They have a, they've got a 16 fleet um, uh, of ferries that they've yeah. got that they've been around in around kind of Sweden uh, or certainly in Scandinavia. Um, they tested them. They loved them. They, we got some pictures of what they were like. It was absolutely fantastic. They really liked it. So I think they, about, about a month later, they gave us an order for I think it was about 250 uh, units of these tubes. They got them fitted. The car deck looked great. And then COVID struck. From from going from having absolutely nothing in this sector, yeah. a one-off email five years later saying, "Are you still in this market?" is now kind of given us a bit of an impetus to say, "Look, there maybe is a route to market, although it might just be straight to the shipping sector." And um, so there there might there might be something that comes out of it. How did you find? So my last question then: How did you find working with Swedish people? Because the Swedish culture is very different from Scottish culture. So yes. what was that like and what did you learn? Um, I, found it, I found it really quite, quite easy, to be honest. And uh, the client that we were dealing with was very easy. He was very communicative. Everything was generally done over email to start with. We've since had quite a number of phone calls. Um, we supplied the, the, the end user via their preferred wholesaler mm -hmm. um, and this, this, it's, it's been really really easy to be honest I found I didn't, I didn't find it difficult although we've got different cultures we found some common ground on a personal basis yeah with skiing yeah. and football and sport stuff that you would generate most of your clients always try and find that common ground but mm -hmm. no I find it quite easy to be fair We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. The Institute of Directors is in the heart of all major cities and continues to represent your point of view as a business leader, both locally and nationally. Our objective is to ensure that your views are taken into account when the government is reviewing policy, legislation, or seeking the opinions of the wider business community. If you're interested in joining the IOD, please visit www.iod.com. Also take the opportunity to listen to our other IOD podcast, Policy Voice. To join the conversation and share your thoughts in today's episode, engage with us on Twitter or join the IOD LinkedIn Scotland group. We hope the rest of your week goes well and look forward to sharing another episode with you next week. Bye.